Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I am Frank Capello. And I am Rivka Rivera. Rivka, welcome back from your Jersey Shore excursion. How was your vacation to my homeland? <laughs> it was it was gorgeous. It was great. It was me and my mom went. As you know, we've been going since I was a child, so it's always amazing to go to particularly this part called Long Beach Island. And yeah, it's kind of wild to go to a place. I don't know if you have this experience where you go to a place that you've been going and it is very filmic in the sense that you're like, you kind of go through all the phases every time you're there in your life. Sure, you have the the, the internal narrative of, of, what, of what this place has looked like, what it's meant to you. Yeah, who you were, all those moments, exactly. And I was, it was really interesting because since 2020 going, there was always the undercurrent of the racism, the pro-cop-ism, uh, <laughs> but 2020 was like sure. the Trump flags were out shockingly like out i'd say almost every house and it was yeah it was was a lot and and um this summer there weren't any was which i was equally shocked about and it just got me thinking about just got me thinking about the changes over those 30 years in the context of capitalism and the disaster capitalism of it all because this is a very it's called long beach island because it's literally that it is like a avenue (laughs) it's like beach bay yeah, the barrier islands, if you've ever seen a map of New Jersey, is just that like that little string of islands along the eastern coast to the south that are only like like some of some parts of it are less than a mile wide the entire way. So like that whole area in Sandy in 2012 just basically was put underwater because it has water on both sides of the it has the ocean on one side and then it has like the bay channel on the opposite side. Yeah, and so as a result, directly under capitalism, insurance went up. People could no longer afford to pay that insurance or own these homes that maybe they've had in their family for a very long time. And so people started uh, selling and disaster capitalism, people who have expendable income like that and don't care if it's going to be maybe a property that they can buy, not be in rent for really high prices, and then just it'll disappear with the climate disaster as it is. Uh, went ahead and bought up all those places. And you can visibly see that along with like the beach just shrinking. It's still gorgeous, but mm-hmm. it also just changed the class makeup of the island. I might be making some assumptions, but based on what I was seeing, the people around, the culture, the fact that um, a lot of the small businesses could not stay open as long as they do in the season because the people who work there couldn't afford to stay on the island anymore because rent prices have hiked up so yeah that was just um sad it's been wild i grew up on the jersey shore in a shore town used to be like mostly you know middle working class and now you know i have friends who still live in the area and they're like i can't afford to live in our fucking hometown anymore i can't i can't afford to buy a house here like the prices have skyrocketed it's it's absolutely wild um Speaking of vacation, a little bit of house cleaning, just want to let our audience know that we're going to be taking the next two weeks off from the podcast. Rifkin and I are both going to be traveling, and then we'll be back on September 26th with a new episode. So sorry for the pause, but it's, you know, it's just, it's easier for us. It's not only easier, It I will say it is, it, um, 
I've just noticed more and more doing this podcast talking about these themes, how workaholism is real big issue for me. And so I I don't know about you, mm-hmm. but taking time off for anything and taking time for a vacation, especially being like, but didn't I just go away? Um, having the privilege to do that, but even just doing it feels rebellious. And I feel like a lot of shame that just comes up when I take time off because it's not what the capitalist working machine would like for a productive citizen to be doing. Yeah, I have a really hard time transitioning from work to to any kind of vacation. I get like anxious. It doesn't feel natural to like go and just like stop <laughs> and not do anything for a little while. You just need to put on a different a different outfit, your vacation outfit. That's a good I should just I should just get like a wide brimmed hat and yeah. a bunch of white linen. All right, and the last thing or things we wanted to talk to before we go to our conversation today, just a little bit of an update on the WGA and SAG strikes. So there has not been a lot of movement uh, in negotiations between the unions and the AMPTP, which represents the producers, but there has been some movement on the AMPTP's side. So a few things have happened. On August 22nd, the AMPTP published its counteroffer to the WGA, this came after talks stalled again, and the counteroffer included, you know, some very, very, very minor concessions and improvements on behalf of the AMPTP. So union members saw this as basically the AMPTP trying to uh, divide the union by putting out their counteroffer publicly and be like, hey, look at all of these nice things that we're offering you. Wouldn't it be nice if some of you stopped striking or wanted to stop striking? It's a pretty classic negotiating tactic, and I think a lot of people saw through the AMPTP's uh, strategy there. And then about five days after, (laughs) this has caught a lot of attention online. I don't know if you've seen this, but the New York Times published a a really nice profile of a woman named Carol. (laughs) Truly. uh, A woman named Carol Lombardini, who is the lead negotiator for the AMPTP. The headline of this profile was, as obscure as an extra, she has a lead role in Hollywood's labor fight. It could have been a dating profile, so this honestly. Is... <laughs> it really could have. <laughs> but this was clearly someone at the AMPTP was like, yo, we got to try to, let's, we got to try to humanize our <laughs> side of things. So let's. We got to make people feel sympathy for the humans involved uh, in negotiating against workers. So they they had the someone at the New York Times write this profile on Carol. And just so you know, Carol is paid $3 million a year by the AMPTP. That little fact. Truly, I was reading it, Frank, and I was like, honestly, this woman sounds lovely. Like, she sounds so nice. The, she has cats. What's the problem? Oh, like, why would she be doing this? Maybe they should make, like, an Oppenheimer movie about this bitch. Like, whatever. (laughs) And then it got to, like, how much she was getting paid. And I was like, oh, okay, there it is. Yep, there it is. So (laughs) completely unsurprising for the New York Times, who just published this week a piece about corporate landlords with the headline, All That Empty Office Space Belongs to Someone. So they have a real knack for just trying to humanize just people who don't necessarily deserve to be humanized by the New York Times. Yeah, and I get really, (laughs) I just have to say, I'll put this out there because I do a lot of work that's about deep listening, empathetic listening. How do we truly maybe not agree, but understand 
And so obviously, just to be clear, when we're talking about humanizing, like we, we're not talking about these are like the most powerful people. It's not about saying like they, there's not an issue of them being dehumanized in the way that they do to those they're oppressing. Just to clarify yes. that, you know, like I think it's like we get it. But it's the when it's when the humanization is being weaponized by these journalists but like in propaganda like that's frankly what's going on and that really makes me angry because when you're weaponizing that and you're avoiding the fact that so many people are being oppressed and actually a large like our whole union is being dehumanized by this person it that make that pisses me off just wanted to clarify that no that's a great point carol's job is to crush the writers and the actors that is her job that is what they are paying her three million dollars a year to do so important to keep that in mind when we read about you know how tough it's been for her to be stuck in the middle of everybody. Carol goes to a chain restaurant and the Hollywood elite make fun of her for it. And then the last thing is this just broke a couple of days ago that the AMPTP has also now hired a crisis PR firm to represent them in the media because for some reason people don't seem to love these, you know, multi-multi-millionaire media moguls and these giant producers. Like, people don't love Bob Iger and David Zaslav enough, so they gotta <laughs> they gotta go to outside help, clean up their image. What are they gonna uh, do? So the firm they hired is a Washington, D.C.-based firm called the Levinson Group, started by a woman named Molly Levinson, who was a former journalist and the political director at CNN. So, you know, just like a, just like a corporate media ghoul. So... Clearly, the AMPTP is getting desperate. They definitely don't want to pay writers and actors a livable wage, but they do want to pay a corporate vampire to make them, you know, not look so mean. So when that's you see where we're Bob at. Iger in Taylor Swift's next, next tour on stage, you know why. Or honestly, or that would honestly be like very possibly sit down interview with Oprah. That's probably I, where we're I headed. I honestly yeah. feel like there is a part of me that would be really good at that job why just because you know how to just because you know how to find the simp you know Mm -hmm. it's just good and maybe it's the that early capitalist i don't know capitalist in me like again you can use humanizing a person as a weapon that's what they're gonna do i'm sure Mm -hmm. bob has some great relationships with his kiddos you know probably has a working class background upbringing they'll exploit shit like that you know I better stop. Give him some ideas. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, don't put too much of this on tape, all right? So that's it. So that's it as far as the where the strikes are at. It seems like the unions are probably still in it for the long haul if this is, you know, where the producers are at. So, you know, hoping that, uh, I don't know, all of these people just give the writers and actors what they deserve. All right, well, we should probably get to our conversation today about the Grapes of Wrath. But before we do, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show. You can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a break, but we'll be back with our conversation about The Grapes of Wrath with Harvey K. All right, we are absolutely 
ecstatic to welcome back to the program Harvey Kay. Harvey, if you don't know him, is a professor emeritus of democracy and justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and a member of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. He is an award-winning author and editor of 18 books, including The British Marxist Historians, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and others. Harvey has worked with figures ranging from Norman Lear to progressive politicians Nina Turner and currently Marianne Williamson on her 2024 presidential campaign. Harvey, welcome back to the show. This is even more exciting for me than it is for you. Believe me. Okay. <laughs> I do believe you. I, I, you know, if somebody said, how's 2023 going? One of the highlights was the last time we produced one of these when we did Newsies, which mm -hmm. I Which still, people should go I back still, and listen to if they haven't. Great episode. Yeah, I still tweet it. I mean, I, I, I tweet that along with all your, there are others. I, I, you know, I adore you guys and I, I can't get enough of you. So, well, well we are so we, lucky to have you back on, Harvey, especially for thank this you. picture. Yeah, this, th this picture led me into a, a return to a scholarly moment. I not only reread Grapes of Wrath and came to truly appreciate, in my mind, that it's the greatest novel. In American literary history. It also reminded me of all the stuff that I haven't read, which I began to think, will I? And then I realized that I have to admit, I probably won't get to all those others. But <laughs> it really just took me back to Steinbeck. And I read parts of his of his biography, this huge, this huge kind of thing. I actually went online and checked out some commentaries from all over the world, most of which were fun to do and probably weren't essential because... Mm -hmm. We got to talk the movie. Yeah. Yes. We will be talking the movie. And so <laughs> if you haven't guessed it yet, yes, we will be speaking about the movie Grapes of Wrath, directed by John Ford, written by Nunnally Johnson, based on the novel by John Steinbeck. The movie stars Henry Fonda, Jane Darwell, John Carradine, Russell Simpson, and Doris Bowden. The budget was around $8,000, and it's not, we couldn't quite- $800,000. $800,000, thank you. I know things were cheaper back then, but that would have been astonishing. That's my, yeah, <laughs> that's my reading. The budget was around $800,000, and it's made at least $1.5 million in rentals, but that's a little unclear. I guess there's not, we couldn't find exact records for that. The film is set during the Great Depression, the story follows newly unincarcerated Tom Joad, played by Henry Fonda, who returns to his family's farm in Oklahoma to discover they've been driven from their home due to drought, economic hardship, and bank foreclosures forcing tenant farmers out of work. The Joads then set out for California, along with thousands of other Okies, seeking jobs, land, dignity, and a future. Though the devastating journey to California puts the Joads through the ultimate test as their family is broken apart by sickness, desperation, and corrupt law enforcement. A little bit of historical context for when the film Grapes of Wrath was released, released on March 15th, 1940, less than one year after the novel was published on April 14th, 1939. And, that, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the, the cultural phenomenon that was Grapes of Wrath, the novel. But that's just that should give you a little bit of telling right at the top that they made they turned this movie around less than a year after the book came out. Currently, in this time, FDR is president of the United States. And in July, he is nominated and then will go on to win an unprecedented third term as president of the United States. 
World War II is underway in Europe as Germany invades Denmark, Norway, France, and other European countries, and Italy enters the war, officially forming the Axis powers with Germany and Japan. Back home in the U.S., FDR is ramping up military production in anticipation of America's entry into the war. Found this out, multiple U.S. highways like the Pennsylvania Turnpike and the Arroyo Seco Parkway in Los Angeles complete their construction, coming after the infrastructure investment of the New Deal. And additionally, the very first McDonald's restaurant is open in San Bernardino, California, and Bugs Bunny and Tom and Jerry make their television Mm. debut. Wow. That's a lot going on in 1940. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Harvey, you know, the first thing we ask, and I think it's, you know, well, it's pretty obvious if you know anything about Grapes of Wrath, but uh, why did you choose this movie for us to talk about today? Okay, well, let me put it this way. This is a powerful film based on a very powerful novel. So in that sense, I don't have to come up with excuses, but there really are reasons <laughs> for it. First of all, I had co-hosted a night of Turner Classic Movies five years ago with Ben Mankiewicz, and this was one of the four films that I had chosen for TCM to broadcast in order to launch what really was the 75th anniversary of the Four Freedoms War Bond Drive here in the United States based on using the... the paintings by Norman Rockwell. And we didn't talk exactly about the film. We talked about the basic narrative of the film and how it related to the four freedoms, especially freedom from want and freedom from fear. Mm. Um, But the other thing is I really did come to see it as the greatest novel in American history. And it offers an utterly different take on what we think of as the westward migration, you know, the the population of the West. This This is the Great Depression. This is a time of FDR and the New Deal, as you mentioned. And the other thing that we have to remember is that, well, not remember, we should realize, is that this film actually speaks to us today, okay? I mean, in a very powerful way, as which I'm sure we'll get to. But I'll just mention, to give people a heads up, is where I imagine we'll go. For a start, this experience, this migration, the Joes travel west from Oklahoma to California is a consequence in the most immediate sense, you might say, of an environmental crisis. The Dust Bowl, which Mm -hmm. ravaged, literally destroyed, in some ways, certain kinds of agriculture in the plain states, Oklahoma, parts of Arkansas, Kansas, and so on. Which is also like uh, an environmental event separate from the Great Depression, which was concurrently happening. So like... Right, like, it compounded like, cri- that. like crisis on top of crisis. Right, and the other, but and the other thing to realize is, it's often described as this terrible natural disaster, but there was really nothing natural about it. The population of the plain states, and literally the you know the clearing and the and the cultivation, should never have happened the way it did. The so- mm. the soil in that in, the, in that region is not deep, and as a consequence, there are certain kinds of agriculture that should be practiced and there's kinds that shouldn't. But really the biggest problem is this, that when they cleared these lands of what remained of, of forests, they literally created the possibility of, if they have cultivated, winds blowing the soil, blowing the soil deeper into the Midwest and even literally to the East. So one of the things in, that they did in the New Deal is they created an agency that would literally reforest parts of the plain states in oh, order okay. to provide significant wind blocks. So that, mm. that's first of all, that it's, it's a humanly created environmental crisis, and that should resonate 
with us here, unless you know you're a MAGA or something like that, and don't believe there is anything like global warming or <laughs> climate change. But the other thing is, it wasn't just that disaster, because the migration that had begun out of Oklahoma had already begun before the Dust Bowl had come to to, to possess that region. This is a film about the power of capital. This is a yes. film about the power of banks and corporations, or, and especially in the case of when they get to California, large land holdings. Okay, mm-hmm. So this is all about, if you like, the concurrence of disaster created by certain human activities that should have been better regulated, and also the concentration of power and property and wealth that is taking place both in Oklahoma and out in California. This is not unlike peasants leaving Europe who have been literally enclosed, as they used to say in agriculture. That is where landlords were becoming capitalist landlords, mm-hmm. etc. And then the other thing is, is that this is a film about insecurity. And if I can promote maybe Lever News, you read Lever News and you know that Vast numbers of Americans are suffering not only financial insecurity and housing insecurity, but food insecurity itself. It's actually that number, food security in the U.S., according to the U.S. Census Bureau, just has reached, I believe, its highest point in the Biden administration. It just it just topped 12%. Three years. Yeah. Highest in three years, in Highest fact. in three years. Yeah. And then the other thing, of course, is that this is a film about labor struggles. Okay? It wasn't just about the concentration of power and wealth. It was also about... Real Americans struggling to sustain Mm -hmm. themselves and having to confront that power of capital. And it raises questions that we dealt with in part in Newsies. It raises the questions of solidarity. So really, I mean, this is a film of today with a, you know, with a different sort of apparent narrative. But more deeply, it's it's a film that should speak to us today. At least that that was my my take on it. I, I think that is a well-studied, well-articulate <laughs> take, Harvey. You're a really plus. good at that. Maybe you should, you should like, you should teach classes or something. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, no, that's I, 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 I'm really glad you brought up that point about the Dust Bowl because that was not a connection that I had made because I honestly didn't know that the Dust Bowl had so much man-made contribution to why it it, it became so bad. So I think drawing that analogy between that and what's happening today in the climate crisis is incredibly important and makes, I think, the the story more prescient for today. Yeah. And as a sidebar to that, in case anyone's interested in international questions, is famines are not natural either. Mm -hmm. They're not natural. Okay. They have human origins and the distribution of food is politically determined. And what we see in this, and by the way, the experience these people went through, talk about, I mean, food insecurity... Everyone should see this film. That's all I can say and and remind themselves that that history does not repeat itself, but we have lessons to learn from those experiences. Mm -hmm. And the fact is that they were, as part of this migration of what came to be called Okies from Oklahoma, of several hundred, I think it's like 300, maybe up to 500,000, you know, took to the road west. And, And those people were part of, you know, in a sense, an American famine. That their food insecurity was so intense. Yeah, everything you're saying resonates, Harvey. And I was so, I feel so privileged knowing, watching the film, knowing we could sit down and discuss it with you because what I really got from this viewing was just, you know, you hear things 
are described as masterpieces. And I think after a while, it becomes a little, like, even a masturbatory set. You're like, what is it? <laughs> what does that mean? But this truly, I'd say what it's this clarity of emotion, spirituality, and truth that is historically present tense and future tense truthful. That is like you are watching it, at least I was watching it in all dimensions, past, present, and future. And through each dimension, there's so many lessons to be learned and they're all the same. And it's both incredibly complex because as you were discussing, all the tangents, all the places in history you can go are tremendous. And yet it's like very clear. It's what, you know, it's, and I think my favorite art is art that can do that, be incredibly complex and just so pinpointed in its message and what it actually means. Like at the heart of it, it means about humanity. It's about what are we all going to do? What have we done? What are we doing today? And what are we going to do in the future? Because we are all just spiritual beings visiting this planet, sharing the soil, sharing the earth. There's no reason that anybody can't become a migrant or have to leave their own land, no matter the illusion or delusion that particularly as Americans, we have around that, particularly that we have around class. But, you know, the idea of like, if you're walking around awake at all in this city today, you're coming, you're going to come face to face with someone who is currently living a version of this movie. You know, you are going to come across someone who is in, who is having a migration crisis as a result of nothing that they have done themselves, merely as a result of some kind of capitalistic endeavor climate crisis and we're all in this together and then the future part of it is us knowing if we open our eyes and we're awake at all that like truly that could be any of us at any moment so that was that was the truth of this film for me as i rewatched it yeah that 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 part especially hit this rewatch in that seeing seeing what the 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 so-called okies were experiencing in this time in the depression and not just the okies but like people all over the country were living in hoovervilles like we we've all seen the photos of the depression and thinking about how that very likely will manifest itself again in our current future like when the sea levels rise, when the heat becomes uninhabitable, we will see. And, the, you know, the sci- all the scientists are saying it. They're like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people will be displaced. They'll have nowhere to go. And th- like it's this is the future today. that we... It's it's ha- Yes, no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's happening Central today. Park, but I mean, they're in opening life. up camp. You know, mm-hmm. they're opening up spaces. It's... It's happening today. Well, but I'm thinking about, I'm also thinking about, you know, I don't know how many decades from now when it's like everyone from Florida has to leave Florida. You know, what will that look like? It'll look like some version of the Grapes of Wrath, which is really, mm-hmm. it's really terrifying when you actually conceptualize it that way. Yeah. And, you know, in, in a way, as long as we're talking about those kinds of things, that last 45 years has been this long, slow kind of, I don't want to call it Great Depression. But I can tell you, and you guys are younger, and I remember when I was growing up, and especially in the 70s, yeah, there was poverty, but there was never the degree of homelessness that I remember encountering, give or take a couple of years, 1980, say. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I mean, it really, it really came home to me when I went for the first time ever to San Francisco, I guess it was sort of 1980, mid-80s at some point. And 
I was just blown away by the homelessness on the streets. And we and and I worried year after year. I kept thinking, people are going to get used to this idea. Not the, not the homeless. They have to, by, by necessity, get used mm-hmm. to living rough. But it's how many young people grow up thinking, oh, this must be yes. normal to have this kind of, you know, homelessness. So, in fact, the one thing I, I want to bring up before we go too far... You remember when we talked about Newsies and we said how ironic it was that Disney was the company that mm-hmm. produced Newsies, given it's a story about labor and working class kids mm-hmm. organizing and so on. And I remember, and I thought to myself going into this, I said, what filmmaker had the guts to make that film? Mm-hmm. Although, in fact, there were other Depression era films. But it is the case that the surprise might be that Daryl Zanuck took it on. I mean, mm-hmm. he wasn't the worst of the Hollywood moguls. But it was the case that, I mean, did he really want to take on a novel to, to, to turn it into, you know, get someone to turn it into a script that was just, I mean, he, he was not specifically a socialist, Steinbeck, but he was as close to a socialist as you could get in his treatment. He had been a journalist at before of this experience before he turned to, to write it up as a novel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you read the novel... There were certain things that Zanuck did not inclu- allow them to include in the film, but it is the case that he took on this incredibly, truly, I think, left-wing novel. And the film that he produced, although it's changed from the novel, is really, I mean, truly powerful. And you can't help but walk away. Either you're going to walk away and say, oh, isn't that a, a tragedy or a shame? But more likely, if you're, you know, if you're an American, you know, who's had any experience in the working class, you're going to say, damn, okay. I mean, I'm not alone in this. And, you know, look at look at the way in which they're trying to screw these Okies out there. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I thought that was really interesting, too, Harvey. And when I was doing some reading about it, just the context in which it came out. This So the novel, when the novel came out, right, it, this was like, it was very, very popular. This would probably be like yeah. Harry, Huge. Po- I mean, Harry Potter popular, like right. very Twilight popular, like. And extremely controversial, and which extremely also controversial engendered more popularity. Oh, I didn't even mention the other thing it speaks to us today about is blacklisting books, banning them from libraries. Yeah. Right. And so part of the reason that it was so controversial was that it it was considered to be communist propaganda, that the telling right. of this story of this labor movement, the telling of the story of these migrants was an exaggeration, that it couldn't possibly be this way. And one thing that I, I was thinking about that was so interesting is also at this time, because I was, if something came out and you're calling it propaganda now, I mean, there would be so many other opportunities to have other takes because of the Internet, because of just like all of our other ways of accessing information and seeing with our own eyes what's happening at this time. If you weren't there if you didn't have access, your only understanding is from what you're hearing. So, right? Yeah. So like, so the idea that yeah, you could think, right. oh yeah, this is this is communist propaganda, even though John Steinbeck w- went and saw this with his own eyes, experience, spent time yeah. at camps. And so this really was documentary, right? You know, this was fiction, but nonfiction. Yeah, and a, lot, and a lot of the big landowners were saying, like, come on, it's not that bad on our farm. <laughs> they actually like... commissioned novels to try to counter it. Wow. Oh, my but God. You know, of course Zanuck, apparently, there's a story that I read, and I, I don't, I, at no point did anyone say this definitely happened, but Zanuck himself apparently was a little wary. I mean, he was fascinated because he didn't want to miss out on the, this could be a blockbuster film given all these people. 
Apparently, he went out and visited camps. He went out and visited camps to see for himself at least one version of the story wow. I heard. And he came back and said, yes, we're going to make this film. Mm. Um, in fact, the, the Steinbeck didn't trust Hollywood. Didn't trust Understandable. Hollywood. And he made it a point. He actually, he, in fact, he had told his editor I, something like, this will never make it into the screen. But most literary critics later said that Steinbeck wrote the best novels to go to film. Well, I think Mice of Men was filming at the same time. He had two films. Yeah, yeah, and had come out, right. And then, and so what happens is he basically decides that he's going to meet with Zanuck. And Zanuck's put, putting up a lot of money to buy the, the rights. And he came away convinced that Zanuck would, wouldn't screw him, that Zanuck would handle it honestly. And, and then he actually told the, the screenwriter, um, Nunnally Johnson, I think mm -hmm. is his name. Cute yeah. name. I, I, love, I love names of the past, right? Nunnally. Mm -hmm. and, Nunnally's great. And he told Johnson basically to treat it as his own, that he's written the book and now the script is up to him. And he, I don't, can't tell you they became friends, but he was very, very pleased with the film that, that came out. Which That's is nice. kind of amazing, given they did shift things around a bit. They did, and we'll talk about those shifts. One other fact, yeah. while we're just while we're talking about Zanuck, that I thought was interesting, considering just actors' rights. I guess Henry Fonda was not Zanuck's pick, but was John Ford really wanted um, Henry Fonda for the role, and so Zanuck wanted mm. um, Tyrone Power, and yes. as, a, yeah. as a compromise, what Zanuck did was had. Fonda had to sign a seven-year contract with Fox, oh, even though he wanted, studio. you know, yeah. yeah, just like, you know, just like, and I think, and he was really resentful of that. Uh, I would be too, if you were like, the only way you can do this is you have to pledge loyalty to me for seven years. <laughs> that was the years of the studio system, right? It was. Those but, exact years. Yes. But he was, but he was still, he wanted to be independent. He wanted to move. Oh, away. no, no, no. I'm not, by the way, I'm not taking that. <laughs> no, God forbid. <laughs> Yeah, that's the headlight on this. Harvey, Harvey is a AMPTP sympathizer. You know what's really weird is this film is is like considered one of the truly great films, you know, of all the, of all the many decades of Hollywood. And Ford, when asked about his great films, never included that on his own personal list, in spite of the power of that film. Interesting. And has, he developed his real reputation. At least, I made it a point of checking on this too. Later, when he was making those sort of post-war westerns, yeah, mm -hmm. he became that was the kind of thing that made him famous. But well, and this obviously is not in the light of that. Then we should talk about Ford, and then we really are going to get into the. But this is all about the movie still because we're also interested in the politics of who are making the film. Yeah, Ford was also interesting. Like all the stuff I was reading, very ambiguous, ambiguous about politics because huge FDR New Deal supporter was a founding member of the DGA was did a lot of stuff that was um fighting against the blacklist you yeah. know um but then also voted for Nixon later as you said like did uh, kind of started to separate himself from this earlier work like very what was that journey so ambiguous there and also like one of these filmmakers who's like I'm not political and yet you're like but I don't know. I'm always untrustworthy of that when artists are like, I'm not political. I'm like, I, mm, you are. <laughs> you are. There's a collective biography of five directors, filmmakers who went to war to serve as filmmakers for the war. Ford is mm. one of those, I believe. Oh, wow. I mean, it was okay. undeniably anti-Nazi and, and, well, and, and everything you say about it. But I, I honestly... 
when I was a kid, I probably saw all the Westerns that, that, that he was making. Or at least if they weren't too adult, my mother might have censored them. Otherwise, I don't know. But I, mm-hmm. I can't actually say very much about it. But the thing about Ford was that he had, he, I mean, he wasn't Frank Capra. It wasn't like that. But he did not want to make films that didn't sort of have some kind of American spirit in his mind that the, the American dream and the American pro, promise. Right. He wanted to make films that would give people hope, apparently. And the novel, you could finish the novel and think, oh, my God, right? You know, it, as you said, the family was breaking up and so on. So that's what led him to, to because of his commitment to the sort of ending of a more you know, positive way, is maybe why he couldn't look back even on the film as it came out to, to rave about it himself. But I can't imagine not taking credit for a film like that if I were John Ford. It's a good segue to get into the actual story of the film and also the story of the novel because I, I, I was surprised. And, and granted, like we said, there are there are big changes, especially at the end of the film, uh, deviates big time from the novel. The novel is has a very, very harrowing ending. But Incredible I was surprised... Ending. An, incre- an incredible ending, but I was surprised in rewatching this movie how how much hope I did find in the story, and maybe that has something to do with uh, with Ford's touch on it. But I I really interpreted this as like a story of like retaining one's humanity and the power of that and the power of solidarity, because this is a this is a, a story of self interest versus solidarity of capital versus the people. And it's it's a very simple story. And that's, I think, why stories like this endure for so long, because, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of plot. They go to different places. Different things happen. All the characters are really well drawn. But at the core, it's a very, very simple story about a family encountering these compounded crises and what it takes to make their way through that. And it, it just like right from the top makes it very clear who the bad guys are. Like one of the, some of the first people we're introduced to are, you know, the bankers who show up through Muley's flashback that have thrown Muley off of his farm and then are coming back to double check. And then we see these guys. So right off the top, we're like, it, this is just about a loving tight knit family that is just getting absolutely fucked over by the banks. And like, that is where we start. And that carries it the entire way through. What's interesting is Steinbeck apparently believed that the novel and there were lots of dimensions in his mind to this, that the novel in some ways was the story, I, don't, I mean, this is funny given the way in which it's written, is the story of a revolution, or mm-hmm. if you like, the, the possible, possibility of a revolution. Mm-hmm. But I want to get to this thing. So Tom Joad, who's the, the senior, the oldest, the, old, the first child, he's, he's just been released from prison. He had killed someone, though his, he, he had committed, as he said, homicide, but it was basically self-defense. He got seven years. They let him out in four. He's making his way back to the farm, which, by the way, is a, is a sharecropper's farm. They did not own the land. Mm-hmm. They had for generations been sharecroppers. And as a sidebar to that, it's interesting to note that they had taken part in the disposition of the Indian lands. Oklahoma had been Indian territory, Native American territory. And similarly, when they get out to California, they, they're going to the dispossessed Mexican territory. Um, sure. So we, you know, we shouldn't leave that out. But the fact is, that, it is so he, left out he, of the film, not mentioned in the film. <laughs> it, not at all. We can come back to that later if we want to offer <laughs> criticisms. But th- this is important. Before we get to Muley's moment facing the banker's representative, is the first person he meets after the truck driver gives him a lift. 
is Casey. And Casey had been the preacher who had baptized everyone in that area, basically, but had left preaching because he had come to some realization that he wasn't fit to be a preacher, okay, that he had excited women so much in the that he also then had slept with them <laughs> all too often, and he questioned it. But the more important thing is, is that he came to wonder about individual souls, and he started to mm -hmm. wonder about to what extent everyone shared one big soul. He was already, I mean, this guy was the, he's the intellectual in this film, not in the formal sense, but he is the thinker and the intellectual. And there's a through line, and I promise I'll come back to Muley. The through line is from him to Tom Joad at the end. And then they go to, to the farm and no one's there, but they discover in the abandoned shack homestead, Muley. Muley, whose family has already left. He's sticking around. He calls himself a ghost, right? Mm -hmm. He's a ghost. And boy, what do you call it, the filming, the cinematography, whatever it is, he looked like a ghost. I mean, mm -hmm. that black and white effect in the in the dark with the with the candle sh you know, shining on him. Mm -hmm. And Muley relates what happened, why people have been leaving. And he talks about the bankers. Mm -hmm. He wants to know who can, who can he shoot when the banker's rep comes. Back to the matter, Muley, after what them dust has done to the land, the tenant system don't work no more. They don't even break even, much less show a profit. Why, one man in the tractor can handle 12 or 14 of these places. You just pay him a wage and take all the crop. Yeah, but uh, we couldn't do on any less than what our share is now. Well, the children ain't getting enough to eat as it is. And they're so ragged. We'd be ashamed if everybody else's children wasn't the same way. I can't help that. All I know is I got my orders. They told me to tell you to get off, and that's what I'm telling you. You mean get off my own land? Oh, don't go to blaming me. It ain't my fault. Whose fault is it? You know who owns the land, the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company. And who's the Shawnee Land and Cattle Company? It ain't nobody. It's a company. They got a president, they? They got somebody who knows what a shotgun's for, ain't they? Oh, son, it ain't his fault because the bank tells him what to do. All right. Where's the bank? Tulsa. What's the use of picking on him? He ain't nothing but the manager. And he's half crazy himself trying to keep up with his orders from the east. Then who do he shoot? Brother, I don't know. Why did I tell you? I just don't know who's to blame. I'm right here to tell you, mister, there ain't nobody gonna push me off my land. My grandpa took up this land 70 years ago. My pa was born here. We was all born on it. And some of us was killed on it. And some of us yeah, and then the next scene, in the, in, there's an ensuing scene in which he then relates how the tractors come and have knocked down the homesteads, basically. And that's an interesting moment, because especially if one knows anything about film of that era, that image, when the tractors arrive and they arrive in a cohort, that, that could have been right out of a Soviet propaganda film as to how the Soviets were modernizing Russian agriculture. Mm. But there's a big difference. Here in Oklahoma, it's the dispossession of, of farmers, sharecroppers. In the Soviet case, it was a case of the collectivization of agriculture and what that afforded so that those who were there on the land became part of the collective, which they didn't necessarily want either, but it did represent an improvement in their lives. But then I should also point out, because somebody is going to tweet me about this if I don't mm -hmm, mention mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. is those very same Soviet agricultural bosses created a famine in Ukraine 
to suppress the Ukrainian resistance. So, and that's such I, that's also such an important scene because it it sets up this it does a great thing in demonstrating this this thing that we hear in our system where which is like it's just a company it's not people you know there's no one there's no one actually there that is uh, responsible or that is to blame or that we can hold liable because it's yeah, not yeah so wait now here's wait think about this now we know that companies are people right uh, that's so right muley's yeah. muley's going to return with that shotgun yeah our modern day muley no, but which is, which is I think something that we hear regularly, which is like you know this is there. There's not actually people behind. It's like it's like running a it's like a capitalist smokescreen. It's like no, there's actually no one here. We didn't do we did it because of the market. We did it because of our fiduciary responsibility. This has nothing to do with the choices that a few people at the top make. This is this is generated from the system, which I guess is partially true in a way. But also there are people. There are mm -hmm. people that make those decisions. So Yeah. And by the way, think about how much we've returned to that Gilded Age moment. Everyone knew the robber barons and their names. Mm -hmm. And now we know the billionaires. We know Bezos. We know Schultz. We mm -hmm. know Musk. We, mm -hmm. I mean, we know those folks, right? So it's, that's further proof of just how much we've literally allowed the Gilded Age order to return to rule our lives. Although admittedly for most people, well, who who can I, who the hell can I deck? Who can I punch? That kind of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think that's a really great point as well because the, there is the, who do I shoot? Okay, well, I'm going to shoot, I'm going to shoot this billionaire. I'm going to shoot the, but it's so distant. And so for, there feels like there's such a gap between, okay, that person with such a concentrated amount of wealth and like the majority of us down here and that real frustration that Muley is expressing of it's like my it feels like passing the buck like who who is in charge you know someone's in charge and really it made me think about the responsibility of these managerial classes in between it, there's gonna come a point where it's like it's not okay to say well I I you know it's not it's not up to me because I answer to this person like eventually like when the ladder falls that's good. I mean, that's going to be part of the revolution. And I think to your point of that, this is a revolutionary text. Like that is the beginning of that, like that frustration, which Tom will, will eventually get to of that's not enough. We have to stop saying that we can't we have to get to a point where we can't say, well, I just got to look out for me and my family. So I don't know. Well, that's one of the applications of the title of this book and of this film, which The Grapes of Wrath, which which has just from my research has a few different applications. But the, the main one I want to mention here is the idea that the ruling class is sowing their own seeds to revolution, that mm. this righteous anger and Tom has a really beautiful speech early in the film about you know, there's only so much a fella can take before he becomes mean mad. And he's mm. speaking to this righteous anger that is displayed throughout the film and that is accumulating within Tom himself, but that it is a righteous anger. It's not just like, you know, and, you know I, I see it so much online because we have the fucking internet these days of people on the right or people who, you know, don't understand the pressures that the system put on people are just constantly like, why are you so whining so bad about all the rich people? You're just jealous. You, why are you so like, why is everyone whining and like, and moaning so much about this? It's like, because some people are, really truly angry and in a way that is justified and in a way that like the people at the top are again yes sowing the seeds to for what is to come and and you you see this build throughout the film as uh, basically as tom becomes more and more radicalized and mm -hmm. starts to find his way towards some version of 
class consciousness. Forgive the professorial way in which I'm going to ask this, but do you know where the title of the film comes from? Uh, yes, it's the song and then a Bible verse, but well, go ahead. The song is the Battle Hymn of the Republic. And in fact, it's his wife, His that would have been his first wife, I think, Carol Henning, is, okay. who was, we don't know if she was a member of the Communist Party or just a, an activist in those circles, mm -hmm. but she's the one who, because I think she did all the typing for it, as a matter of fact, she told him we should title this Grapes of Wrath from the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which adds that sense mm. of movement, of march, of... Because can you hear the song in your head? Because don't ask me to sing it. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, don't ask good. us We're to sing, Army. <laughs> um, so, yeah. You know, I... And, uh, I just want to say, too, um, I was listening to this young climate activist the other day, Tori Sui, I hope I'm saying their name correctly, but it was so powerful. They were talking about exactly this, like the power of anger, um, how anger is one of the most powerful catalysts for change and how I think, as you were referring to, Frank, right now, when there's a lot of anger maybe coming at us, it's very easy to dismiss it. But I think it's really helpful to remember that anger is actually an act of love or can be like it, it's very much related and connected to love. And I know that in my own journey and process, I've had to find that again, that there this fear of anger. And so this fear of that wrath can be very, very powerful and not only powerful from a place of destruction, but it, an act of creation, an act of actual love. There are some words in the novel. By the way, the novel is an interesting structure. So. There are two kinds of chapters. There are the narrative chapters, basically, the story of the Jodes. And then there are, what do they call them? Interstitial chapters. Mm -hmm. And it's the interstitial chapters in which Steinbeck steps back from their personal journey and talks about history and politics. And he puts it into a context of what's taking place at the time, but never leaving behind the personal kind of touch which and i harvey i just want to say i know you're making your point but just that made me think of the cinematography yeah. mirrors that in the film which i think it does really well it moves between these these um images that feel very almost documentarian it could be real yes the big picture and then swoops into the personal which is just as you said that i think it i'm sure it, it got that yeah and the novel fact, and was true to it i'll try not to leave behind my thought too much but he actually was in consultation before he he pursued all of this with, I guess, Per Lorenz, is that how you pronounce it? The, the foremost documentarian, basically, of the Great oh, wow. Depression. And um, and also, that conversation of, of Muley with the bank's representative is not actually in one of the narrative chapters. It's in an interstitial chapter. It wasn't oh. Muley who, who, who does it. It's actually a conversation that he constructs. Interesting. The thing I was going to say is, early in the novel, he, he wants to really get at this class kind of question in a way that gets at that, call it spirituality, call it the question ultimately of solidarity. And he says in this interstitial chapter, this is the beginning from I to we. He says, the baby has a cold. Here, take this blanket. It's wool. It's my mother's blanket. Take it for the baby. This is the thing to bomb. This is the beginning from I to we. He's talking about people sharing who are in the process of making this great migration. But then here he goes on, and this is what caught my original imagination because he mentions Thomas Paine and Karl Marx in this one paragraph. If you who own the things that people must have 
could understand this, the I to we, you might preserve yourself. If you could separate causes from results, if you could know that pain, Marx, Jefferson, Lenin were results, not causes, you might survive. But that you cannot know, for the quality of owning freezes you forever into I and cuts you off forever from the we. Wow. Mm. So what he's saying is whatever politics that, that creates fear in you, okay, it, that, that, that politics is a result, or if you like the anger that people feel and the solidarity they're pursuing is a result of not possessing what you possess wow. and driving them into that kind of state of affairs. I, that, mm-hmm. I that didn't say stunning. that well, but you get the idea. No, you did. And I, I mean, I think that's stunning at its core. It is that sense of, well, it's interesting talking about land and what was it called early on? You you'd used the word before in capturing the land, just um, early early land possession, oh, like enclo- at, en- enclosure. Yes, enclosure. Oh, yeah. And I remember first learning about enclosure and just that concept of like, that's it, right? And there's so much about the land, the the dirt in this film, the connection, the human connection to land, but also that concept of who gets to name, who gets to quote unquote own land and as soon as you name something that is yours you have to defend it and you have to fight for it and that there is it's interesting we were talking about that critique of not not addressing that this was already stolen land that people are still fighting for and and that that from my understanding from a lot of indigenous culture there's there they there's a different they don't have that connection to land as something that you are owning or having or enclosing that you are in service and with the As land. property. Yeah, it's not property. Yeah, and, and there's that spiritual right. connection. And so um, that's even inside, you know, that's even in there. Of The connection of land as home it rings true in this film. And especially for Grandpa. Yeah, Ma Jode. That, and that's Ma Jode's place mm-hmm. in all of that, really. Um, when they're driving away. And Grant, well, yeah. I mean, you know, just tell everyone that. So it's these, it's the grandfather, it's the grandparents the parents and the kids and the young one of the younger of the kids a, a woman who's mid or late teens she's married and pregnant now so it's this and then you have muley okay and and they've been, already been driven off and they're at the uncle's place before they're setting out for california and muley that moment where he, he falls to the ground and he grabs the dirt okay similarly she is driving away and her son al who's driving the, the, the truck they've created, he turns to his mother and says, aren't you going to look back? Ain't you going to look back, Ma? Something like mm-hmm. that. And she, she says, no. You know, basically, she says, that's the past. We've got to look to the future. But you can see it's eating her up alive. That, by the way, the casting was brilliant in this movie. I, I really was extraordinary, I thought. And then Grandpa, as he passes. Oh, yeah. So wait. And he... First, he's all excited at the prospect of going to California, those grapes that he's going to smack, you know, he's going to crush them in his face <laughs> by the handfuls. Next thing, he's he's hiding out. He doesn't want to go to California. And they literally have to dope him up <laughs> to get him on the truck. Well, and then as yeah. Grandpa passes, which I thought was a beautiful visual to tie into what you were talking about, Muley picking up the earth and and letting it pour through his hands, Grandpa, as he's passing, grabs a mound of dirt, pours it, over him and kind of a subtle they don't make a big deal of it i missed that moment in my head 
Yeah, it's stunning. I, and it's really interesting because the deaths, the, what's really remarkable about the film, too, is like every time someone dies, you're almost like, wait, 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 what? And that's intentional that like just death on this journey is going to be fast and inevitable and you can't really slow down to grieve or mourn. And 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 the departures, like the, the husband of uh, Rosa Sharon, Rose, mm-hmm. Connie, who at a certain point she she leave, he leaves, he just right. leaves. Okay, we didn't think it was going to be like this. He said, but the other thing is, and I'm going to ask you this: if, Did you notice that one of the brothers just disappears from the movie? Yeah, yeah Noah, Noah, Noah. In the novel, the, when they're taking the dip in the river, the, and they're all washing up, you know, the men are washing up. Mm-hmm. He he says, "I'm not going back." I, he know he's a little slow, basically, and he mm-hmm. decides he's not going back, and he just walks away. He actually he he walks away. It's like he's as if he's going to go with the flow of the river. Mm. He's not he's not killing himself. He just goes away. But they literally just allow him to disappear in the movie, which I thought was a flaw of the editing. Yeah, because I, I remember that specific moment from the novel and the the staged version as well. Noah's uh, departure being like really sad in the movie. I was like, wait, did they we skip over? The part where Noah leaves? No, I, I was just going to say we don't always go chronologically, but I think in this film it's a little bit useful. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the foils of Tom Jode and Casey because I think Casey is such an interesting character. In like we've said, he was he's a you know basically a, a preacher who gave up the cloth. Are you familiar with the actor, by the way, Carradine? His son is also a major actor in, in I guess later in Hollywood. Carradine, mm-hmm. the Carradine. Sure, it's a father and son. No, he was great, Carradine. He was a, and he was the kind of guy you would have. I, they might have even made him into like a Dracula at some points in the movies. I mean, because he, he, if you saw that visage of his, it's just, it's stark, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a handsome role that he would fulfill. It was more of a haunting role that he would fulfill. But that yeah. look on his face. No, I'm serious about it. That look on his face was one of somebody who's been thinking awfully hard about about life. And his fellow humans sort of plays like the the Shakespearean fool character in a couple ways. Not in that he's acting ridiculous, but that he has these moments where he is reading other people incredibly clearly. Oh, and is, yes, yes. And is, he's Let's like talk, <laughs> right. Harvey. So Let's like everyone who couldn't see moment. Harvey's face, Harvey was about to fight you. Where Casey <laughs> comes in with these like like some of the most uh, I I think accurate lines in the whole film. And his art, like when Tom meets him, he says, I ain't got much to preach no more. I'm not so sure of things. Mm-hmm. And then once he becomes a union leader, he says, Tom, you got to learn how, like how I'm learning. And he's the, he's the one who tells Muley, like, you're not touched. You're lonely, but you're not touched. You know, yes. he's, so he's yes. he's he's witnessing and is able to uh, define for everyone else what everyone else is experiencing while he's still figuring it out. And I think his arc is so interesting from essentially preacher to union leader because by the time they get to, to to the farm in California that they're actually able to work on, that we find out that there's a strike and that Casey has now, be, he gets separated from the Jodes and then becomes basically like a, a union organizer. And um, let's, not leave, let's not leave out how he gets separated. Because that's, mm-hmm. that's literally, to me, for him, that's his climactic moment for mm-hmm. him. Because they've arrived at a camp, a Hooverville basically, is what they've arrived at. And... It was not unusual for the locals. I mean, the locals literally would, would seek excuses to beat the shit out of 
those who were living in the Hooverville. They didn't want them anywhere near their town, okay? Or as they would say today, not in my backyard. That scene where they encounter the roadblock of Californians in the middle yeah. of the night, which oh, no, is absolutely. terrifying. They're driving, yeah. and like, yeah. just a mob of Californians are just like, get out of here, Okies. And they well, what run right around. As you know, as, as happens in this scene in the Hooverville, is that, to make the long story short, a cop draws his, draws his gun, okay, to take in this guy he's convinced is an agitator, a guy who's challenging the system. Mm-hmm. And that guy runs, and the, the cop shoots... And, and who does he hit? He hits a, an innocent woman who falls to the ground. And then he starts to run after the agitator, what in his mind is the agitator. And it's um, Tom Jode who tackles him take, or trips him up, takes him down, and he's knocked out. And Casey says to him, you got to get going because you're still on parole. If they take you in, they're going to send you back to prison back in Oklahoma. And literally pushes... Tom to run. And Casey at that point just says, I, it's me. I knocked him down. The cop says, no, you, <laughs> no, you didn't. He goes, no, take me in. He literally puts out his hands for the cuffs and they take him in and you think you're never going to see him again. And he's in jail and they just literally throw him, you know, just throw him out of town. And he comes back, but he's already, something has awoken in his mind. That moment he sees a, it's like a political catharsis for him. I think that happens. And then he, of course, travels up and he gets he's got to look for work and he gets takes that job in that on that ranch and they go out on strike. And he's now he not only already sees things happening, he's literally become a labor activist. Mm. And then, of course, Tom reencounters him on that night where Tom is eager to know what's going on out there. And then, and then it's, and then it's case, and then it's the murder of Casey by some of the strike breakers that becomes Tom's great radicalizing moment. In that we're like we're seeing his development, we're seeing it, and and Casey is sort of like starting to impart these more radical ideas or or more just humanistic ideas to Tom. And when Casey is killed by the strike breakers, that's when Tom is like, oh no, I, this is this is fucked. Like yeah. I have to, like, yeah. at, what, which I think is a very which I think is a very common way for people to become radicalized, to see some sort of like grave act of injustice or great violence or, you know, the, the harm of the innocent. Yeah, that moment in the tent is really significant because mm-hmm. he's gone out of curiosity. He just wants to know what's going on out there. And he discovers when he gets out there that the family and all the others who have come into this ranch that day are strike breakers. There was a strike underway that they've literally been recruited to break mm-hmm. might, okay and he only discovers that when he's out there and and they're trying to talk him into joining in the strike to take the family out and he said no no my you know my my pa is not gonna is not gonna leave a job whatever the situation may be merely for the sake of some other people he doesn't know and then that's you're right that conversation he has with casey and it's it is literally an awakening that's the tom's awakening moment where mm. on the one hand he said why should we care? And the next minute, knowing what he already knows from experience, Casey has literally, in quote, enlightened him. And then he gets, and then of course, Casey gets killed in front of his eyes, and he just instinctively picks it up and kills the cop or the, or, you know, the, the local who killed him and makes off. So, yeah, mm-hmm. that's his moment of mm-hmm. catharsis. Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And following. Right right after this, we sort of get to this moment where we've been following the Jode family very much like their 
Moses fall, like leading people over this journey. It's very biblical journey that they've been on and they cross not a river, but the bridge. And they finally, after they lose grandma as well in the jalopy that they're in, um, they see California. It's this epic moment. They get in, but then later, and then they journey on further and they eventually get to the uh, workers camp that's maintained by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And this- Say it again. Weed patch. The name of it is weed patch. Yes. And I want to, and I'm really happy to have you here to talk about this because this is a part that I could imagine even at this time. I mean, it's so, you're so happy that they finally make it someplace that is humane, that Ma, Joe, you know, Tom says Ma's finally being talked to with respect. They've been through so much inhumanity um, from others. They've actually learned so much humanity and shown so much humanity to each other that they get here and even um even the guy I don't remember his name but he sort of looks like FDR a little bit wouldn't you say the manager I, yes. his name I forget as well but mm. the manager of the camp can I say yeah I am so that is really the most amazing moment first of all they are so skeptical of him they think this is a they that they're, they're, they're being too. lied to again it's- it's a very well, funny it's a very funny moment when he lays out how nice everything is there and then they yes. just kind of looking at each other sideways just like is this guy fucking full of shit? And like, it is and this is this is really crucial. Those here's what happened. Early in the depression, there was a movement in California to try to create to try to get the state of California to create camps like that. Okay. Pro, but the, the the landowners hustled and lobbied and blocked the, the state from doing it. Landowners in California could basically control the state and that as case as cesar chavez would, himself would later decades later you know fully realized so the landowners have blocked it but there's a guy named paul taylor who was a significant figure he contacts rexford tugwell who is an assistant secretary of agriculture under henry wallace in the roosevelt administration and rexford tugwell was a definite lefty he was a socialist and he decided then we should pick up the problem. So he wanted to create lots of those camps, but I'm pretty sure the Senate, which was dominated by Southern Democrats, the Dixiecrats they would become, they would not fund it on the scale Tugwell wanted. So Tugwell figured, well, we'll create model camps. So they did create a few, and this was one of those model camps. Wow. And this is notable in the film, and it really did happen this way. Steinbeck knew a manager of a camp and had gone from the vile camps of the Hooverville-like and ranch-like ones and visited one of this. And that manager actually organized the camp, basically a workers' democracy, mm-hmm. right? They, it was, he didn't manage. The word manager shouldn't even been applied. He was as if he was like, you know, what do they call him? The governor general sent in from afar mm-hmm. just to supervise mm-hmm. to some extent. The actual families there were organized into committees and they set the rules and they established their own, in quotes, police, hmm. basically for the purpose of maintaining peace and keeping out the locals because the police could not enter one of those camps unless there was a riot. Yes. And as one will see in the movie, they tried to create a riot. That was one of my favorite moments when they're at oh, the God, dance yes. and so just as Harvey's describing and they do they, they you're like this is a lesson in organizing in just <laughs> how you defeat well, they, get, they, they get tipped off that the the deputies and these guys are going to come and try to like 
fake a riot and then bust up the camp. So they okay. get like this tip off so that they can yes. prepare. And one of my favorite parts is, so they get the tip off. They're like, someone's coming to the dance tonight. And these guys come who you're like, it's clearly these four. <laughs> like, oh, you mean yeah, those and, and guys, they're, those they're single organized. dudes? Everyone's yes. like with a couple. You're like those four single dudes with the hats that doesn't look like anyone else. And they come and there's this like big metal just thing that they're holding up and he's like oh i know that guy and they're like uh all right they're like you think it's that guy yeah it's like we're like we know it's those guys <laughs> and but they guys crowd scowling. around them they crowd around they get more guys they crowd around and they literally dance them off into you know into the it's dark. amazing right and, at the time that they yeah. know that they're going to start the riots so then when the police come they're it was and there's so few examples of that where you i was like this is where you don't need in this storytelling to be on the side of like one one individual went like it was such a, I was like wow I'm getting all the excitement of a grand battle with like nothing there was no violence you're just they literally like it was it was so great even though I had read the novel seen the film several <laughs> times even yesterday afternoon when I watched it again to be ready for you two I got so anxious when those guys appeared on the scene thinking <laughs> I know what's gonna happen but damn it if they don't you know you know, I was waiting for some kind of punch to be thrown, having forgotten that no punches have to be thrown at all. So, yeah. There's one more thing I want to say about this about this workers camp, which was just astounding, is how you ha how I you I felt like I had the experience with the Joads of just being skeptical, which is, I think, the general like if, if we have been told that this is too good to be true for so long as part of the mythology of capitalism and of this country of like you can't live in peace amongst each other and everyone have their needs met and be kind human nature is not like that that you feel that skepticism and then there's this beautiful one of my favorite shots of the film I think and it's a very small moment but like it's Tom sort of like you watch as the reality of this camp is starting to um, pass over him and he passes by there's like a they're they have running water at this camp and it's um they haven't had running water anywhere for so long on this journey it's the first time they have running water and they have showers and just all of these the the kids keep saying like oh like they have in the catalogs they've never seen a shower before and they've never seen a toilet before didn't you remember they, oh a toilet before they, yeah and they flush the toilet and thinks he's broken it Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. And so and it's just one solo shot of Tom and he passes by a running water fountain that's been left open. He puts his hand under the water, um, enjoys it over his face. And then there's a sign behind that's just like in this community, essentially, like we watch out. You don't let the water go. We look out for what. And you just see that hit him like, oh, of course, like that to me was like that is human nature. And that is so rare and we get this in tom jode is like that is tom jode's human nature ma is so afraid that that the incarceration system made him mad that all of this would make him this person and we see like our human nature is to take care of each other and that is the core of this film and it actually is really rare that we get films that tell us that most films in america are saying that you know you actually have to fight your your not your nature is to be selfish your nature is to actually be greedy and want more than you need because that's being a human being and we have to fight that for society to work and this in that small moment i'm like no that's our human nature and everything else is what we have to fight you know how you you notice when grandpa picks up the dirt and sort of rubs his rubs, i'll tell you there was an interesting signal and i only caught it fully in my mind yesterday on the my, the next time I watched it, 
And that is that the camp manager, Tom Jones says to him, why aren't there more camps like this? You know, and he says, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's something you can, that's something you need uh... to find out. And I think that was a message in the film by the scriptwriter to say, yeah, wh- why the fuck aren't there more camps like this? Right. Because mm-hmm. it's, it was, this place was great. Plus this, this camp is the signal that whether or not Steinbeck ever called himself a socialist, which he didn't, it's clear that there's a term that's missing in the American political vocabulary, hmm. which would have been the way in which FDR's New Deal experience could have persisted and maybe not allowed later Democrats like the ones we have now to get off the hook. So it's like as if it was a choice between socialism and capitalism, right? But it's, there's something called social democracy, which is not... Because in people's minds, socialism is state ownership. Social democracy is organized working class, okay, a lot of publicly owned, you know, support and housing, et cetera. Basically, social democracy is created to meet the needs of the citizens. And socialism is this, it would, in many ways, would be the next step. But it's just, it's just clearly Steinbeck is further left than even he might have allowed himself to, to admit because the camp is the model. Well, I think a lot of people are further left than they either want to admit or even know that they are, because I think a lot of these values are values that we all share, but especially in today's polarized, atomized political environment, you know, the way that we define those values and whose values and who and whose values get to be prioritized end up, I think, splitting us yeah, when it's right. like what everyone just wants. They just want to... They just want to hang out with their family. They want everyone to be healthy. They want food. They want life to be good. That's that's it. Yeah, and they want right. and they want freedom and dignity. Now the sad part is after the dance, a few of the cops make their way into the camp because now because they're looking for someone, right? They've they've gotten notice that there's this and Tom assumes because he hears the activity that they're looking for him. And he decides he's gotta leave. That he'll, he's dangerous to the family now, that they'll dis, that they'll discover him, and to me the most touching moments in the film, I mean I know the grandfather passes away, the grandmother dies, but the most touching moments are then, then and there, when Tom and his mo- Tom tells his mother he's leaving. He doesn't want to wake everyone else up, but she comes out into the dark and she t- he's telling her that he's leaving. Well, maybe it's. Like Casey says, fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Doc? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere, wherever you can look. Wherever there's a fight so hungry people can eat, I'll be there. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy, I'll be there. I'll be in the way guys yell when they're mad. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. You know what? I could hear that a million times. I'd sort of tear up every Mm -hmm. time. And and then I'll just point out as a Fonda played the young Lincoln in a film. Was that directed by Ford as well? Do you know? I don't know. And then he goes off, literally, he's going up over the hills 
Okay, but it's not the end of the movie. However, the sad thing is, is that they feel compelled to leave. Well, first of all, they get word there's work to be had. Um, some ways to the north, I think it was. Uh, 20 days of work they're being promised. I think picking cotton, something like that. So they pack up again and they leave. And they're not the only ones leaving, they're, but they're leaving the camp. And it's at that point you say to yourself, oh my God, they're leaving, they're leaving Utopia, at least in the terms of yeah. the California at the time. Yeah. And they're heading off. And there's a lo- set of words that she offers at that time, which is the difference between the Steinbeck version of the Grapes of Wrath <clears throat> and the John Ford and Nunnally Johnson version. The words that she's now going to tell her husband, Pa, and I can't remember if it's her brother or her son, Al, are words that showed up much earlier in the novel where she's trying to give, I think, Tom himself reason to move on, to hope, you know, that there's, you know, we're not coming to an end. Mm-hmm. So she, she, I have to go earlier in the novel. Um, she's talking to Tom, easy Tom, easy Tommy, you done good once, you can do it again. She doesn't want him to get carried away and get literally get taken away or get killed himself. And after a while, I won't even have any decency left. Easy, she said, you've got to have patience. Why, Tom, this is not in the film. Tom, us people will go on living when all them people is gone. Why, Tom, now we're getting to her words. Why, Tom, we're the people that live. They ain't going to wipe us out. Why, we're the people, we go on. We take a beating all the time. I know, Ma chuckled. Maybe that makes us tough. Rich fellas come up and they die, and their kids ain't no good, and they die out. But, Tom, we keep a-coming. Don't you fret none, Tom. A different time's a-coming. I want to mention it in good part also because I don't know if that particular set of words, a different time's coming in the, when, when she speaks. Because what does she mean, a different time's coming? Well, socialism? Real democracy. Mm. And Steinbeck's got that in the novel. That's another mm-hmm. signal to mm-hmm. me that he's that th- this is a revolution underway. OK, but it, it's a little different in the film. Wait, before we finish, should we just mention should okay. we just mention the actual way that the novel ends compared the, the oh, yes, that's a good point. Before we go to the awards, we just want to talk really quickly about the changes between the novel and the, the film. The film ends with those words that Harvey just spoke with Ma and Pa in the car after they have left the camp. In the novel, uh, they continue on the Jodes without Tom and uh, Rosa Sharon, who's been pregnant the entire time. Although they never say pregnant in the movie because they can't. Oh, do they not? No. You, you can't say pregnant. Oh, sure. They couldn't oh. say pregnant in the in the 40s. Oh. But so they yeah. they they like hint the at I it. I just Lucy think that's so. Yeah, it's like the I love Lucy thing. They can't say yeah, pregnant. There's a lot so of stuff always... in, the, in the novel that never makes them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they can't but... curse. They All the fun stuff. Keep in mind that at the time, the, the the book was so big that most people who went to see them, it's not unlikely a lot of people who went to see the movie knew what happened in the novel. Sure. Mm. And and they carry Rosa Sharon on, they carry her from where she's positioned onto the truck, which at least is an, I don't know, it's a hint of- I guess it really was the original Harry Potter, there. right? You read the book, you saw the movie, it was like- Yeah. I, I Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a Harry Potter fan, by I, the way. You know what? Maybe we should do Harry Potter next. Oh, gosh. Anytime, Harvey. So Rosa Sharon gives birth to a stillborn baby, and then as the family is 
continuing along, they encounter a starving man. Uh, is it either on the side of the road or in, in a new camp that they end barn. up in? They in actually barn. take refuge. There's been a they're flooded out of the next camp, which, by the way, Steinbeck witnessed that kind of thing. Mm. And so they and they t- seek refuge in this barn, basically. And pe- there's a, there's a little boy and a, a dying of hunger man there. And so unspoken ma and rosa sharon look at each other and rosa sharon offers her breast to the dying man and that is the greatest i don't want to say sacrifice but like it's it's the jodes continuing to give as much of they can of themselves to their fellow man to their community which is something we've seen throughout the entire film and every time you think that you know that they're they're just gonna only think of themselves they end up thinking of others and that's kind of, and that's the ending of the book yeah and, that, and really did i get that right harvey right yes it's really significant because again um people say oh ma's only real concern is the family all the time the family but at that moment she sees the family as more than her kin. In other words, the solidarity is not just the solidarity of the family, that they've all come to realize the degree to which solidarity means their people, basically. All of us, the human family. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, and it's one of the mo- well, I just think it's one of the most beautiful image. I just remember reading that as, as you probably did too, Frank, when in high school. Because I think it's like on, you know, it was like one of those reading list things that you come across and you're like, this is going to be boring. And then you're like, this is one of the most profound, I mean, profound, biblical, gorgeous, inevitable images that every writer should be writing to something that incredible at the end of their text. And I was, I'm just, I'm always sad it's not in the movie just because I think that it would be such, such a, I know there's play adaptation, like it just would be such a remarkable thing, I think, to see on film. I don't, there's not, I was looking yeah, around. There's so many biblical references, right? I mean, it's just, oh, or at least God, the imagery yeah. is, is like of, of a, a, you know, a Michelangelo kind of representation of uh, the Bible, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it really is astounding. And it is black and white, the movie, everyone should know. I, I got to imagine that's where the Hollywoodification of the film came in. I'm sure they probably discussed it and someone was like, we can't shoot that we're like we we're not gonna put that on film that's not gonna be the ending of this movie well, yeah, would, just, no. would, would just be my assumption um, i just also wanted to add because i've been thinking about you know like could there would there what would i want to see in a remake what did they miss what could be done even better to try and get closer to the novel obviously this last image so spielberg um has been trying to do a remake and there's been some copyright things with the estate and different things getting in the way of that but oh Interesting. Oh, yeah. Some, yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Oh, that's funny. I just, I'm glad you told me that because I saw a reference to Spielberg somewhere online regarding this film and I didn't realize what I was seeing. Surely they would. I'm surprised in this day and age in which originality is lacking, hard to find who's going to try to remake it. I'm sure we will see one in the next decade or so. I, I would bet. All of the little money that I I'd have rather see in, that than Barbie. To... Like, let, like this. If you're gonna remake some, if sure. you're gonna put this story out there, I mean, what an incredible story! Again, for all the reasons that we started with on this podcast to tell right now. How are you gonna do that? How are you gonna take ownership of the fact that you know it's gonna resonate with our present circumstance? And I do hope everyone out there who hears this that if you didn't catch the very early stage where we're talking about how this speaks to us today. Go back and hear it again. Go listen to it again because 
we're ending on the end of a, of a movie and the end of a novel, but it's far from the end, the story. That's the key. Mm -hmm. Well, Harvey, we love speaking with you so much. Could do it all day. Could really do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I feel the same about you guys. We'll do a harvest on these one, things are great. one um, day. But uh, this is the part of the episode where we got to go to the awards. Mm -hmm. So you yeah. know them. You love them. Our first award is a point with a view goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. It's, it's either Tom or Casey, but... If is we think of, is... think about Casey and Tom as like, they are in many ways this kind of, their continuity is unmistakable. And so it's hard not to see them as a, as paired, even if Casey wasn't there to see it happen. Yeah. Tom as like the, as the disciple of Casey yeah. and influenced right. by Casey. Or um, then maybe mm -hmm. if we're doing it for the side character, I don't think we remembered the name of the person, the man who ran the workers camp. But I have to imagine. Oh, yes. You know, I have to oh, imagine yeah. he he was there before, you know, <laughs> Tom yes, and Casey are like, catching up. He's probably got right. to, he's probably got the most coherent politics. I'll put money on it that he's a leftist before he ever got to that camp. It's because basically, yeah. <laughs> I don't think the rules of the of the Ag Department of Agriculture were to make it that kind of radical democratic order inside the camp. So yeah, actually, cool. if if you were measure as a measuring rod, he may be the have the best politics. Yeah. Okay? But, but Tom and Casey but, have the most drama. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Our next award is Despicable You goes to the character with the worst politics in this movie. Hmm. Oh, I gotta hear what you guys think, because I have a thought, but I don't Okay. I, I don't want to say it yet. Yeah, I'm I have a I have a strong one for this one. I'm just going with all police. That's yeah. This was a pretty a cab movie, huh? This is a very a cab movie. It's uh, it should be noted we didn't really talk about it at all, but throughout the entire film and throughout all of U.S. history, the police are just pure collaborators with capital. I, I agree with you, except for one thing. And especially by way of the actor they used, the one make it... Oklahoma cop that they met. I okay. think his name was Ward Bond. I could be wrong. He is the only good cop in there. But by in the novel, there's not a single good cop. Oh, really? He's an addition. Not a single good cop. And Steinbeck uh. was clear about that. Not a single one. Yeah. I mean, no, I think that's a great one, Frank. And yeah, I was just thinking about how like, wow, it really is. It doesn't even even showing him as like a good. I don't know if he showed him as a good cop or just like having a moment of like being kind. Oh, he, yes. doesn't, he doesn't do like yeah, that much great. Kind, he was right. being kind. Um, I did appreciate how excited they were that he was, you know, because this is, again, just reminds you of, like, if you don't have any other inter like connection to people, phones or anything, they're like, you're from our town. I imagine someone being like, yeah, it was Cherokee County. It was Cherokee County. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I the love kids it. were the best in that moment, right? They, they just they practically it. fell off the truck. Yes. Um, um, I guess other, uh, you man, know, the banks, yeah. I don't know. They, you know. No yes, one... yes, go there. Because I, I want to say that... Muley's desperation to know who to shoot, mm -hmm. it's those folk. It's that's who to shoot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the worst politics because, anyhow, I mean, but I think the cops are there. You could see them, but it's the ones you couldn't see. Yes, the yeah, ones you couldn't see. Exactly. And our last award is A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. And this is a, this is a film rife with Wonderful I'm, supporting characters. Wow. Yeah. I, I sat and thought about this for a while, so I'm 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 not off then the you, cuff right now. Then you start us off, Harvey. 
Well, part of, I had different ideas. Like one of my ideas was Rosa Sharon. Oh okay. yeah. What, yeah. What, what Rosa Sharon ends up getting a job in a, uh, I don't know, somewhere in California, maybe working alongside others uh, in, a, in a shrimp, in a shrimp, in a fish factory, you know, where they skin mm-hmm. the fish you know, for canning or whatever else. And she, and she find and she gets organized by a Filipina woman or a, you know, Mexican American woman. And she becomes a labor organizer. I mean, if, that kind wow. of thing. that was one version. Okay. Wow, you really you have like That's a whole it. outline here, Harvey. You have to write yeah, this, like and a, it's called Rose like a Wait, Don't forget, my fantasy is I'm casting you guys in various films. Oh, thank you. I'm ready to play Rosa Sharon, might be, <laughs> but write it soon. <laughs> Get to writing, Harvey. <laughs> no, so the thing is that I, I really want to. I know follow ups are never as good as the original, but I, I want to see Tom the organizer. I I, I really want to sure. go there. Yeah. And because uh, he's beca- he's by this time he's almost become a different person. Be like, you know? are you really everywhere, Tom? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you keep that? A promise? kid just laughed, Tom. Kid just laughed. Are you there? Someone's that, hungry. Are you there? That that was a t- <laughs> that's a touching moment. But then. <laughs> I'm going to edit you out, man. <laughs> well, wait, no, seriously. You know, I, I've, his closing words I, are the, among the greatest in script writing ever, to my mind, okay? Mm-hmm. But it's also the case that it's not just touching as he's talking to his mother. It's also, as he looks in the camera and he's doing it, it's like saying to those bankers, those corporate bosses, those landowners, I'm coming. Mm. We're coming. So it's both touching and also a promise made, you know, and call to arms, and a threat, yeah, and a threat to those who don't view it as a promise. That was really yeah. solid. Mine is a little silly, but I found it. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about her. I'm you already know, laughing. Let you, me... <laughs> at the dance, right? Um, which is a moment of levity for us finally in this movie. At the dance, well, there's a lot of levity actually, but um, there's that one woman there's like this girl there's the guy who keeps going around asking everyone to dance and then like a husband will pop that's out. the brother al yeah brother al and yeah. he was getting turned down and then he dances with this one girl who he like goes to first and she's just in this weird position like lean i don't know if she's drunk or love the choice of the actors like just kind of leaned so funny against this pole and her dad's like go away and then they end up dancing and they're like cheek to cheek and those two you know what? It's so good that you noticed that. Can I tell you something? In the novel, so he's the he's the younger brother who's literally horny all the time. Uh, yeah, I got okay? it. And in the film, he goes on. He's, he's got. He, remember, every single time he, there's any image of him, he's trying to talk up some girl or woman, a young yeah. woman, and he's constantly. And he says he's going to go out and meet. At one morning, he says, "I'm going to go into this godforsaken camp, and I'm going to see if I can meet any girls." Basically. Well, in the film, and sorry, in the novel, he should be a preacher. He actually does meet that girl, and they get betrothed. Yeah, yeah, it was like the Tinder of the time. He was just going around the dance. You know, you asked me early on. I sorry, you asked me early on about why I chose this film, and I think we had been talking about some films. And I think when we when we got to Grapes of Wrath, we were talking, and I asked you if you had read it, and you're you're the one, Frank. That is, you sounded so committed to the novel that's why i started by rereading the novel hmm. just so you know okay i was committed to the novel yeah <laughs> I, I asked you about it and you told me weren't you 
Jeez, am no, I wrong? You read it? Didn't you say you read it? No, I did read it. I think I probably what? told you that East of Eden is my favorite Steinbeck. Really? I forgot that part because I don't no. want to read East of Eden. <laughs> this is fun. It's fine. The, the, the movie version is not that good. It's not worth talking about. Um, yeah, my choice for this was also going to be, I would like to see the Tom uh, sequel, love like Tom the Organizer. Uh, I'd also see like like to see more about the manager of Weed Patch. We already talked about him a little, but I want to see... I, I want to see like how he got into his position running this camp and you know mm. where his political leanings came from. All right, Harvey. Well, we're gonna have to let you go, uh, sadly, but I'm sure I'm sure we'll have you back again at some point, and we'll see you as well. We'll hang out in the real world. <laughs> and in, I know you've already answered this question before, but as you know, we like to discuss with our guests how they you know try to practice their values. They're anti-capitalist, progressive, you know, pro-labor values, what have you, in their own life. So. Do you have a, a a different answer for us this time? Yeah, and this this links to something that you and I, Frank, are going to be doing very soon. So <laughs> I've been involved now for some time and all the more energetically these last couple of years in pushing, trying to get one or more Democrats to embrace FDRs and redeem FDRs economic bill of rights. Mm. And I I obsess about doing that. So it's that I obsess about that and what what I can do as my next film with you guys. <laughs> awesome. And 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 by the time this comes out, our interview will have been published. So you can go to over levernews.com and sign up for the Lever Premium Podcast feed and you can hear Harvey and I talking about the 21st century economic bill of rights. Harvey, we, we truly this is such a gift to us. Like mm-hmm. we get to learn so much and we and we love just spending time with you. You're such a joy. You bring so much joy to this work and it always encourages me it always makes me feel more motivated to keep doing this stuff so thank you again for your time and for your work and for joining us here again today. i want to thank you and i want anyone who's listening if they don't already subscribe to this podcast that they should because i spend tuesday morning when i wake up looking for this podcast because that's when it drops and that's even if even if i haven't seen the film i get pure joy listening to you guys handle it Thank you so much, Harvey. Thanks so much, Harvey. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you have been enjoying this show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. Just a reminder, we'll be taking the next two weeks off. But on September 26th, we will be returning with the sci-fi comedy classic, Back to the Future. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Bye.